So the juice bill, everybody wanna bid. And then everybody wanna dip. Told you I ain't worried, I ain't scared of the boot. All you can do is spit a verse of the truth. Merge the mixture with the carrots, the fruits, and the thirst of the worst. The guys in the juice. Good morning, and welcome to episode 1417 of Effectively Wild, baseball podcast from Fangraphs.com, brought to you by our Patreon supporters. I'm Sam Miller of ESPN, along with Ben Lindbergh of The Ringer. Hey, hello. Is the Glaber Torres home runs against the Orioles the defining fun fact of this era? It has certainly been cited a lot. I think my pal Zach Cram is writing a whole thing about it for The Ringer right now. I think I have reached saturation with the Glaber Torres fun fact. I mean, I guess it keeps getting better because he keeps playing the Orioles and he keeps homering against them. But I don't know what to make of it. You know, juiced ball year and the Orioles are the worst team and terrible pitching team. And it's just kind of a coincidence, I guess. So, well, I, I mean, or is it? I Well, it, that, that he's been this great against them and compared to how he's been against other teams, I, I don't think he's like particularly well suited to pick on bad pitching or something. And that's why he's beating up on the Orioles. But I don't know. It's kind of fun. It's fun to extrapolate it and figure out like what it would be over a full season or hypotheticals about what if someone just dominated one team all the time? Would he even be worth rostering? So it's kind of entertaining in that way. See, I think it. I'm not saying that it's my favorite fun fact. I'm not saying that I get a charge every time I hear it or anything like that. Although I guess the answer to both of those is kind of yes. I, I just sort of mean defining in that it is completely outrageous and it is it combines sort of three three major themes of this year one of the themes being that the ball is juiced and all home run records are sort of unsatisfying because you know that the ball is juiced and you don't really know what to make of any of these things two is that the orioles are historically bad at pitching and at not allowing home runs and so you put Mm -hmm. those two things together and three is that it's Glaber Torres, who is 22 years old. This is the era of young players who are really good right away. He's 22 years old. He's got, you know, six career war already. He's basically a, you know, 22-year-old almost star. And it feels like hardly anybody even, like he's lost behind 10 other superstar young players. And so put those three things together. Uh, And to me, you have, if you could only save one fun fact, uh, from the year uh, that captured as many sort of zeitgeisty things as possible, I think it would be Glaber Torres hitting 13 home runs in one season against the Baltimore Orioles. <laughs> yeah, it's pretty good. I was actually going to bring up Aristides Aquino. Oh, I was too. In fact, as as that same sort of thing, as like an embodiment of baseball in 2019. Because he, of course, he went 0 for 4, I I think, on Tuesday. So the fun facts slowed for the moment. But he set a record by hitting eight home runs in his first 12 games. And really, it was 11 games that he did it all in because his first MLB game was last year. And it was just, I think, one pitch hit at bat in that game. So he just went on an incredible run in his first 11 games of this season. He was called up to replace Yasiel Puig after the Puig trade and has basically been a better Puig in every way since that point. And Puig has been great since that trade too. But this is another one where I don't really know what to make of it because 
he kind of came out of nowhere, and that's sort of a 2019 thing, I think, for guys to come out of nowhere. Not that that hasn't always happened in baseball, but as I wrote recently, there's more turnover among the top hitters. There are young guys coming up all the time, really talented young players, as you were just saying about Torres. And Aquino's 25, and he's been in the red system for quite a while, and he's been up and down, and he was actually non-tendered after last season and then signed to a minor league deal by the Reds, who he had been with before. So he's not really in the same class as Gleyber Torres, but in the sense that he's a swing change guy that they completely remade him. He's got this open stance now. He looks like Tony Batista. He hits a lot of fly balls. He came up from AAA where he was hitting a ton of home runs because the ball is juiced there as well. So he kind of fits into the guys coming up who weren't really top prospects but remade themselves in some way, reshaped their swing, and are now just uh, laying waste to the league. And also it fits into the there are so many home run fun facts that I don't even know that they mean anything anymore genre too. Yeah, I don't know if they mean anything anymore either. I mean, to make it mean something, you almost have to hit 13 home runs against one team for for you to really understand like what we're talking about here. There are so many home run fun facts this year. It's yeah. it's wild. Yeah. It's they're not fun. <laughs> I don't know if they're fun. I mean, I I'm still I'm still making them, but I mean, I don't know, to me it feels like I don't know, like doing home run fun facts in 2019 feels like doing like a borscht belt comedy in like 2011 where it's just like oh you're still telling jokes about like your wife or whatever like it just yeah okay yeah i mean that's your gig that's what you do but you're right i mean i don't know i i'll I'll put it this way i make a lot of fun facts about home runs right now i do not actively consume very many like when i see someone (laughs) making a home run fun fact it's like cross to the other side of the street (laughs) oh he's still doing the home run beat that said ben (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> the Orioles have allowed six or more home runs in a game seven times this year. Mm-hmm. The rest of the American League had allowed six <laughs> of those games. The Orioles are, uh, no, they're not fun. It's, sorry, they're not fun. I tried it. It's not fun. I lost interest midway through. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I wanted to ask you about specifically the the first player to hit X something in Y games. We've Mm -hmm. had a lot of those this year. Yes. Uh, Jordan Alvarez has been like pretty much every day doing one of those with RBIs. Bo Bichette has been doing one of those almost every day. And then, of course, you've got your your Spike Owen comps that come up every (laughs) once in a while. I I forget who it was that did that. (laughs) What do you, what's your feeling on that genre? It's memorable, I guess. There are certain guys who maybe the most memorable thing about their whole career is what they did in their first 12 games or something. I mean, I think now that the Aquino thing is being brought up, people are talking about Trevor Story. Trevor Story, obviously a good player, but I think what he did in his first whatever number of games it was, maybe the most memorable thing about him to this point. So I kind of like it in that does make someone a, a big story. I mean, I think Aquino would have been a big story if he had hit eight home runs in 11 games at any point during the season, but that it happened when he first came up and that he wasn't a top prospect and he kind of came out of nowhere, that really dominated the, the headlines in a way that it wouldn't have if he hadn't compressed it all into that short span of time. Mm-hmm. I don't know that it tells you right. much more about what the player's career is going to be like. Like, right. I don't know that 
Aquino is like a superstar in the making. I mean, I think he he is a, an interesting player because he's got this great arm. I think he had the hardest outfield throw of the season in his brief time in the majors too, and he hit one of the hardest hit balls in the majors this season. And so, like, he's clearly got some tools, and he's kind of fun, and he's also like a, a high strikeout guy, which is another 2019 thing. So I don't know what he's gonna be, and it's very possible that this will be the the high point of his career. This will be the thing. This will be the the time when we're all talking about Aquino more than we ever will be again. So I kind of like it in that sense, but from an analytical perspective, I don't know what it means, if anything. Well, I, I think more from a fun fact perspective, I'm not sure that I think that it is the best way to com- to even convince me that something so uh, like for instance uh he's hitting 429 474 a thousand 1143 he's slugging 1143 and i i feel like uh if you tell me he's played 11 games he has eight homers he's slugging 1143 uh, i got it like i i feel like at that point i understand i am overwhelmed i feel a little bit frightened he is a truck bearing down on me okay if you tell me he's got the most X through Y games in his career, it's it's almost too many details, and I feel like I'm being like misled. Like I feel like mm-hmm. anytime a fun fact gets too wordy, I know you're cheating somewhere on the edges. Now this is a pretty simple one. It's the most home runs through games played, right? Home yeah. runs are pretty simple, but all the same, there is something about that construction of a fun fact that loses me partway through. And I just feel like his slugging percentage is already a better fun fact. I feel like eight homers in 11 games is already a overwhelming juxtaposition of two numbers, two figures. And so I feel a little bit empty. Now, I felt this way. I think I I remember sort of feeling this way about Cody Bellinger when he was doing like most home runs through 40 games or whatever, too. It, It felt like there was a better way to communicate what he was doing. On the other hand, it is unprecedented. And what better way to, to show that somebody is unique, somebody is uh, is an outlier, but to say that he has done something that nobody else has ever, has ever done. So I get why these are in use. I might be trying to, to pick a problem, pick a fight with this that doesn't need to be. Maybe everybody else likes them. But I um, I don't know. I, I'm not moved by them. Mm-hmm. I'm more moved just by, by hearing what, what they're doing, seeing their stats, Bo Bichette's stats. Like, okay, so everybody has heard some fun fact about Bo Bichette has more extra base hits through X games than anybody or has the longest extra base hit streak by a rookie than anybody. But does everybody know that Bo Bichette's slash line is 394, 444, 742? If everybody knows that and you're just painting a fuller picture by putting that line in perspective, then then I think that's good. I feel like we're skipping the slash line though. Like we're just <laughs> skipping over the headline. He's yeah. got he's got he's hitting 394 with a ton of power and he's got more doubles than like half the league. He's got more doubles. I had to come up with a list of people he had more doubles than. He has more doubles than Justin Smoke or either Chris Davis and that was before he hit two doubles that night. <laughs> so, I don't know. I feel like he, we're 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 missing the thing that is easily accessible and also incredible. Yeah, it's implied, I suppose. If you hear that Aquino hit eight home runs in his 11 games this season, then you can probably figure that his slug slugging percentage is really high. So maybe we don't have to say it, but in a way, yeah, I am just more impressed by the slash line, I think, because when I hear you say first X in Y, 
I I, I guess it makes me focus on the sample, maybe. I'm dwelling on the fact that, oh, it's 11 games, so, you know, who cares about 11 games? Right. Maybe that's part of it. It it just, I mean, if you told me a slash line, I guess I'd want to know the sample. I'd want to know, like, how many games are we talking? How many, you know, what what plate appearances? Could just be one good game for all I know. So maybe if you're going to be honest about it, you're reinforcing that anyway. But yeah, something it just it makes me think like, oh, flash in the pan. Like, you know, Mm -hmm. he's he's doing something in his first 12 games. Fine. But what's going to happen next? I guess it makes me focus on that aspect of it more. Yeah. And I think somebody it might have been Bellinger, but the person that they passed was I think Kevin Moss and when you you always got to be careful with your fun fact when there's one other name in it you want to make sure that the other name is Ted Williams which Bo Bichette's other name is Ted Williams and uh, not Spike Owen uh, or or whatever the case may be the other thing too is that most homers through 11 games he has so that means if you didn't hear this yesterday he didn't have the most through 10 games and if you don't hear it tomorrow he didn't have the most through 12 games and like a player is going to play like thousands of games and you're just saying like one day of his career, he was historic. Like for one day he had done something It has the potential to diminish because you know that there are a lot of different numbers that you could pick for your, you know, games played. Right. Yeah. I don't know. It's still good though. He's still good. And honestly, to be honest, I'd probably, it probably got my attention with Aquino. I, I would not say yeah. that it, it always gets my attention, but it got my attention with Aquino and, I don't I don't know. Maybe I would have if you just read me the 1143 slugging percentage or whatever. Yeah. I mean, I hadn't heard of him 10 days ago. No. <laughs> so <laughs> So this leads into something else I wanted to bring up in the Tuesday Reds Nationals game. Aquino did not homer. He didn't do much of anything at least at the plate. But on the other side of things, the Nationals won 3-1, to one, and part of the three was a home run by Juan Soto. And I wanted to talk about Juan Soto because I, I don't know that we have said the name Juan Soto on the podcast this season. I, I can't recall if we did. It must have just been a brief mention. And that's kind of a shame because he's doing really historic things and not over 12 games, but over, you know, 200 plus games. And Juan Soto now has a 142 WRC plus this season. And he is, of course, 20 years old. And I guess we're not making a big deal about this because he's doing exactly what he did last season. He had a, a 146 WRC plus last season at 19, which is even more impressive than a 142 WRC plus at 20. So we're just like ho-hum, yeah, we we know that Juan Soto is this great and he was the rookie of the year runner-up and all that. But you just mentioned that you want to be in the same breath as Ted Williams. Well, this home run that Juan Soto hit put Soto ahead of Ted Williams on the list of most batting runs through age 20. There's now only one hitter ahead of Soto on that list, Mel Ott, who is very tough to to beat because he came up at 17 and he had almost 400 games through his age 20 season. So he just uh, he put up great rate stats, but also more playing time. But Soto is matching him on the rate stats, and, and now he has gone ahead of Ted Williams for just batting runs by a, a player this young. And I have kind of taken it for granted and haven't really talked about it, I guess because there was really no doubt in my mind watching Soto last year 
that he was this good. Like, he wasn't a guy I was looking at, like, oh, is there, will there be a sophomore slump? Is he actually going to be this great? Because he just seems so polished and mature, and he walked so much, and he had such great plate discipline that it was just like he had sprung forth fully formed, and that has turned out to be the case. And his stats this year are almost perfect replicas of what they were last year, and I just wanted to acknowledge that because he's doing something that really almost no one has ever done yeah he's incredible i wonder uh, he's an interesting case because i feel like he maybe 15 years ago or in a pre-war era he probably would get more attention than he does there's something about what part of the things that part part of what makes young players you know phenoms and, and rookies and so on so exciting is because they're young they're usually faster than than they will be later they're usually playing a a better a tougher position than they will be later this is the time when you get to see you know them usually play their their peak defense and so like bryce harper came up center fielder mike trout came up center fielder ronald acuna center fielder you know tati shortstop and so a lot of these guys who i named and who i also didn't name are they're either playing very difficult defensive positions uh, or, or maybe they're putting up kind of like elite defensive uh, metrics like uh, for instance like Manny Machado did when he came up and was playing third base and he was arguably the greatest third baseman in history for those couple years and Soto because he came up and and is just a left fielder and isn't and he's a fine one he's he's average-ish uh, but he's not exceptional he's not a war monster in the way that the other ones are yeah. he's going to you figure that he's I mean look he's He's 19 years old. Well, he's 20 years old now. He's already got, you know, 47 home runs and he's got a WRC plus of, you know, 140. And uh, he's got, uh, you know, he's going to chase all time leaderboards as a hitter. Mm-hmm. And we will definitely appreciate that over the years. By the time he's seven, eight, nine years, I think uh, he's uh, we're going to appreciate the offensive force that he is. But at this point, I wonder how much we just go, well, you know, he's extraordinary. We love him. He's one of our favorite players. He's great. But he's like a five-win player while you look at Tatis and Acuna. um, And they're prorated over full years. They're like seven, eight, nine-win players because of their defense and their position. Yeah. I was going to bring up Acuna. Acuna also homered on Tuesday, his 34th. He just needs two more steals to be a 30-30 guy. He has an outside shot at 40-40. He's been stealing a lot of bases lately, but it'll be tough. But I think that's a big part of it. Obviously, Acuna overshadowed Soto somewhat last year. He was the rookie of the year. Soto was the runner-up, and they're in the same division, and they're approximately the same age. And Soto's a better hitter, I think, than Acuna, just, you know, slightly. Acuna's basically also replicating his rookie season over his sophomore season. But I think Soto may be a little bit better all-around hitter, but Acuna hits more dingers, so he gets more attention and he steals more bases and he's a better defender and he does it all and he's maybe just kind of more charismatic as a player, more attention-getting, so... I think that it could be like a career long thing. Uh, you know, maybe it'll be like a a reigns to Ricky Henderson sort of thing where you have like the the best leadoff hitter of all time overshadowing the second best leadoff hitter of all time who's playing at the same time. 
I don't know that the the gap in value between Acuna and Soto will be as big as the gap between Henderson and, and Reigns, who are both Hall of Famers, but Henderson is, you know, two Hall of Famers, as Bill James said. So I think that is probably part of it. If there were no Acuna, we might be paying more attention to Soto. Does it seem like we're talking really fast? <laughs> I feel like both of us are just flying, like we're... Really going fast. I had not noticed. I'm going to now deliberately slow it down. Um, You said that this is a total aside. This is completely irrelevant to anything. I don't know why this is the time to bring it up. But you just said that uh, Soto is probably a slightly better hitter than Acuna. And uh, that makes sense. Soto is has slightly better numbers than Acuna. Uh, I'm just curious. Acuna is right-handed. Soto is left-handed. If you mm. were to give them each identical platoon, you know, plate appearances with and without the platoon split, I imagine that Acuna would actually out-hit Soto. But yeah. because Soto is left-handed, the game favors him in that way. Yeah. So do you think that we can say <laughs> who is better? Does does the fact that you were born left-handed count as a skill? Uh, I don't think it, i mean it does yes it it does help you but it helps you but is it a skill is it does it yeah. fall under better i don't think so i don't okay. make a, a mental adjustment there wait you don't make a mental adjustment so no, you're not i wouldn't sent- i wouldn't ding soto for okay. not having to face same-handed pitchers more if, if i'm saying who's better I think he's still more productive, right? And But you would, hypothetically, if one was in a tougher league than the other, if one was in the American and one was the National and one of the leagues was tougher, then you yeah. would you would make that adjustment. That is true. But yeah. <laughs> uh, but I can see why why it's not comparable. I can see why you would not consider those to be analogous. Yeah, well, should we do a platoon adjustment for war? I, I don't think we should. I don't know. I don't but... know either. Well, <laughs> you, don't, you shouldn't because you're not forced to play one or the other the team i mean we look at war from the perspective of how the team would benefit given all the options and the team does not there's not like a if there was a rule that said you could only have four lefties in your lineup at any given time and that you had Mm -hmm. to have five five righties in your lineup at any given time then we would start to treat the left-handed and right-handedness of a player as an asset or uh-huh. as a liability that needed to be adjusted for. But because we don't have that, because you could theoretically go out and get nine left-handed hitters, then it doesn't really affect your... Um, it, it is no cost to the team that you are left-handed, so you wouldn't adjust it down. Yeah. All right. Sense. Ben, mm-hmm. I have recently completed two baseball books, and mm. both of them both of them were interrupted toward the end by Scott Boris quotes. <laughs> Oh. <laughs> uh, Scott Boris jumped into these books <laughs> yeah, that's with his right. quotes. So mm-hmm. I'm going to read each of these. And uh, I know that, that Jeff is not here to make dolphin <laughs> noises, but I just want to know, uh, I don't know, maybe we'll, maybe we'll have some sort of Boris rating uh, yeah. for each of these. So There is one in Homegrown, right? One, the, so the first one is Homegrown, is yeah. in Homegrown by Alex Spear. Uh, and this is, he's talking about Alex Cora, who uh, was a Scott right. Boris client. I love it when Scott Boris clients are like Alex Cora. Was Alex Cora <laughs> a big time prospect? Not or that any I kind of recall. prospect? I don't either. Scott Boris, I've been to Scott Boris's office and looked at all the, the pictures of all his clients on the wall. And uh, it's really delightful because you don't realize how many players he represents that you don't really ever hear yeah. him, you know, Boris's name necessarily associated with. And in some cases, they're former first round pick 
who, you know, never really turned into a star, and now he's just a role player. And uh, and you think, oh, that's nice. Boris uh, is still representing him, nine, you know, nine years later. He's a, you know, he's a platoon outfielder, but he's still a Boris guy. Uh, and then sometimes that you don't know. You just can't figure out. You can't figure out how the player convinced Scott Boris to represent <laughs> him uh, as, a, you know, 13th round pick coming out of a, you know, small college. Anyway, so, uh, all right, Alex Cora talking about uh cora's managers man, uh, about managerial gift for helping his players fulfill their potential boris dubbed it cora lytics okay here's the <laughs> yeah. quote cora lytics understands that you have to have the synergy of analytics plus the psychology of a player Mm-hmm. Coralytics is that that's not synergy that's synthesis but anyway we're going to get yeah. past it. Coralytics <laughs> understands that you have to have the synergy of analytics plus the psychology of a player. Coralytics is worth something far more than analytics. Let's put it that way. We know where analytics come from. The thing is someone can bring you all the ingredients for the cake but if you don't know how to bake it. <laughs> it just ends there. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Yeah, I'm regretting not naming my book Coralytics or at uh-huh. least a, a chapter. That's kind of what we wrote about. But I think, yeah, I've, well, the, the Coralytics is one thing. And then, then he brings in the baking analogy, which was pretty unnecessary. Out of nowhere, point. really. I, yeah, I got the point. I didn't really need the analogy to clarify the situation. So it's not the classic Boris nautical analogy that Jeff and I always talked about, but I appreciate that he can bring in so many just diverse fields. You know, it's boat racing, it's submarines one day, and then it's baking a cake. Well, I don't know of, that I don't know that he has demonstrated his superior cake baking knowledge yeah, here. He I just, guess I guess that's true. I don't know that he's ever demonstrated nautical knowledge when he has made those analogies. I'm not sure they made sense. But I think in terms of being superfluous, this was uh-huh. up there with uh, with some of the best, just totally unnecessary and, and doesn't really clarify anything. Well, there's two things in here that he manages to, to you, you're not even sure which one you're supposed to object to. Are you supposed to object to the labeling of this thing, which is basically just like has been identified in, in many players, the ability to synthesize both stats and, and experience. He's labeling that Coralytics, which is not... <laughs> That is my dishwasher, which is not, I don't know, not necessarily like you hear that and you're like, I don't know if that's going to catch on. And then and then the sudden appearance of a baker. And <laughs> yeah. so uh, so I would say that the, both of those are a little they're in they're in character. They're in they're in the style of Boris. Uh, mm-hmm. I don't think either one, though, is is terribly objectionable. I mean, mm-hmm. you don't need to name this thing after Alex Cora, but the you know he is he is describing uh something that i think is true about alex cora uh mm-hmm. and that is valuable and that that people have a great deal of uh that the sport puts a great deal of value on in a manager right now and uh so that's good and then the the the, the baker thing it is true sometimes <laughs> someone can bring you all the ingredients for the cake but if mm-hmm. you don't know how to bake it you know i don't need so <laughs> i'm going to say that that's uh, oh, i don't know how are we rating this <laughs> It's it's not his most egregious one for sure. It, it's just the it's unnecessary, which which gets to me. Like we didn't need the baking the cake to really explain illustrate anything, but 
I don't know if we had a scale. Uh, I don't remember what his his worst one ever is that would kind of calibrate this, but eh, it's only like halfway like, to like, that. Yeah, it's, like a, I would say like a three or a four. Yeah, assuming a scale of one to ten. All right, mm-hmm. here, here's the other one. Uh, this is from Big Fella by Jane Levy, and he's uh, this is uh, coming from Boris is talking about Babe Ruth, and he's talking about how you uh, the the conversation is about how much he was worth to a franchise, maybe how much he would be paid uh, if uh, he was paid his his true value. And Boris is saying that it's not you know that the value is so broad, and that he brings in so much different revenue, and that really even you have to think about his role in growing the sport. I mean, the, the single-handedly, you could maybe argue that Babe Ruth, uh, you know, grew the income of the sport, grew the stature, the status of the sport in a, in a major way that made money for everybody, including his team. So uh, he's, uh, then, he, then it goes to this. The hardest negotiation is with his own client to get him to understand that the ultimate competition is between himself and the game. Quote, you can't let the influence of greatness erode greatness. That is always the hardest dynamic for a great athlete. It's not that the game will not beat you in the end. It's how long can you beat it? Your behavior is going to limit or sustain the number of years you can beat the game. We're trying to keep the performance focus at a level where it's myopic. And that's the quote. So we don't have any. There's no metaphor. Yep. There's also no new, new word introduced. I also just read it and I cannot tell you what that quote was saying (laughs) i kind of like the idea of beating the game like you know you're gonna lose to the game eventually your skills are not going to be up to the task but it's all about how long can you beat it i guess it's not an original idea but i don't know that i've heard it expressed in quite that way so it it sounds like he's saying that like the more you focus on your baseball playing the longer you can beat the game and you shouldn't get distracted by all the other stuff that comes with stardom is that what he's saying you can't let the influence of greatness erode greatness so i think that's saying get that complacent you, you can't get complacent you uh-huh. can't get uh you, you know you can't let your celebrity keep you from getting better so that if, assuming i'm reading that that's right that is always the hardest dynamic for a great athlete. Okay, that's actually interesting. As a maybe nobody in the world understands great athletes and the pitfalls around great athletes better than Boris. So that's good. All right. It's not that the game will not beat you in the end, it's how long can you beat it. And so that's saying, all right. Uh so uh it's about uh, similarly it's it's about recognizing that your goal is to extend your competitive window. You can't necessarily beat the game, but you can sort of, you can beat it for years, longer than you think. You can mm-hmm. you can keep on pushing that back further, even if ultimately you're going to lose. Your behavior is going to limit or sustain the number of years you can beat the game. So that, I guess, is a kind of a, a little bit of a mundane point, but that goes back to you're in control, that that you have to be in control of your career. We're trying to keep the performance focus at a level where it's myopic. I don't know exactly what the what he means by it's myopic there, but I think that it basically means we're keeping distractions. We, yeah. it, the key is to keep distractions. Okay. All right. So honestly, I would say that that is a perfectly fine description mm-hmm. of what sort of advice a superstar really needs in the peak of his career yeah so we're calling it a one that's uh that is that is there is no no problem there 
Yeah. Good it's, really, it's about how you bake the cake. You so. call, you call, some days you call Scott Boris because you want to get Coralytics. And some days you call ho- hoping for genuine insight and just praying that, that he isn't going to give you Coralytics. So it depends <laughs> on the day. It depends on your needs as a reporter. So mm-hmm. he, he can go either way. All right. Got anything else? Yeah. Something quick. So I just had one of the most fulfilling MLB at bat experiences of this season. Not the best way to follow baseball, but sometimes you have to. So I was at the gym earlier and I was alerted by the Facebook group that the Dodgers were pursuing what would have been a record. They were trouncing the Marlins 11 to 1 and they were on their way to having the most hits in a game in which all of the hits were extra base hits. So they had 11 hits at that point, and they were all, I think, doubles and homers. I don't remember if there was a a triple in there, but no singles. And so they entered the ninth, essentially needing not to single to get this record. Mm -hmm. And I think Russ Martin struck out, and then I think maybe Bellinger struck out. And so they were one out away, and then Christopher Negron was up. And he got down to his last strike, and it was kind of a longish at bat, and I was watching each pitch, and I was strangely invested in this. I was really rooting for this accomplishment. I couldn't have told you what the record for most hits in a game with all extra base hits was five minutes earlier, but I got really invested in this. It's kind of a a 2019-type accomplishment because singles are so rare these days, and you've got so many dingers that, you know, you have the potential to get a lot of non-single hits and so I was really rooting for this to happen and then Christopher Negron two strikes he poked a single and he ended it all and it was very deflating (laughs) it was quite upset with Christopher Negron for having to spoil this although I understand why uh, he was putting his own performance before this very strange record that I was not aware of (laughs) that he was not aware of there's something there's something very Sometimes unsatisfying, but I would say usually more satisfying when you're watching rooting for a record or whatever you want to call it that the player is totally unaware of and that also he has no incentive to chase. (laughs) Yeah, that's right. And by the way, after Negron singled, the inning continued. There was actually a double after that and then a triple after the double. So there were two more extra base hits. But then Kyle Garlick singled again before the end of the inning. And I think the Dodgers ended up batting around because Russell Martin came up again. You know, the record uh, for this, this is interesting. The record for this is actually nine and it's uh, the the Braves in 1998. And Mm -hmm. they had nine doubles. So not only is it the record for most extra base hits without a a single it's the most i mean there's like five or ten records in there (laughs) like fewest triples in a game with only doubles fewest homers in a game it's the only game with no homers and all doubles uh and so that's uh that would have been a weird game probably got written up Mm -hmm. next day's paper i i I don't know ben i wasn't gonna bring this up i was just gonna i was just gonna let it go but how can you call it an umpire's perfect game when he only gets one team's calls right. That is the least perfect game. If I could see perfectly balanced where he missed one on each side, 50 on each side, that's perfect. The umpire's job above all is impartiality, isn't it? You have described a game where he only 
only messed up for one team. That's what we conspiratorial, conspiratorially think he is trying to do. It's the worst representation, the worst caricature of our enemy, the umpire, who only takes it out on our team. And you called it perfect. <laughs> well, I guess I could say that uh, a pitcher, when he pitches a perfect game, only has to get one team's hitters out. That's his job. <laughs> yeah, that's not a very good comeback. <laughs> but that's that's one thing. I would have uh, preferred if there were some completely perfect games that I could have called umpire perfect games. I'd also say that I guess uh, we probably pay more attention to what umpires are doing to to one side like to to our hitters uh, you know you're paying attention to the umpire all the time but you're probably getting more upset about mistakes that he makes when your own hitters are up and maybe that so. bothers you more I, I think so and you're identifying with your hitters who are looking upset when the, a call goes against them so to a certain extent, I, I think that because we're maybe monitoring what an umpire does more closely, half the time it kind of counts. But also there's just never been <laughs> a real umpire perfect game that we've tracked. So this is the, the best I could do. Yeah. Okay. To me, <laughs> to me, some combination of overall accuracy with balance would be the most mm. perfect game but but of course like you say there is not a perfect game there there, right. there wouldn't be a perfect game in that situation and you know the, the deadline speaks doesn't it <laughs> yeah <laughs> last thing that i wanted to mention jeff mathis went one for three on tuesday which uh, by jeff mathis standards is a very good game that is a 71 wrc plus and that raised his seasonal wrc plus from eight to nine so Jeff Mathis is now batting 165, 220, 232 on the season. And I've been watching this because mm -hmm. uh, he's having one of the worst offensive seasons of all time. And going from eight to nine, that uh, does bump him into a tie for 10th place all time, minimum 200 plate appearances, as opposed to a tie for seventh place, which is where he had been. But still, one of the worst offensive seasons for someone who has gotten this many plate appearances. He's right up there with, like, Brandon Wood recently, Tony Pena. They are the guys who've had really terrible seasons recently. And he has also lowered his career, WRC+, Plus, at least entering Tuesday to 47. And that is pretty special because minimum 2,500 career plate appearances, only the immortal Bill Bergen and uh, also Raphael Belliard have been worse than Jeff Mathis on a career basis. And no one but Bergen has been worse than Mathis in as many plate appearances as Mathis has gotten. And we've talked about Bergen before. Bergen's, I mean, he's in a, a class of his own. He's a, a 22 career WRC plus in more than 3,000 career plate appearances. And that's just, I mean, I've read about Bergen and he played during an era where stolen bases were very frequent and he was a catcher who had a great arm and was seen to be great at restricting the running game and that skill was probably more valuable at the time that he played like the first decade of the 20th century than it has been ever since but even so he was such a, a terrible offensive player that there's no way that the arm could have possibly made up for that but you know no one's going to catch Bill Bergen but 
Jeff Mathis is going for Raphael Belliard here, and he's had more playing time than Belliard, so he's got a, a solid case as, you know, maybe the second worst hitter of, of all time, given this much playing time, and mm-hmm. and that's impressive, it, especially that he's doing it at this era, because you would think there was maybe more tolerance for terrible players or terrible hitters in earlier eras where you just didn't have the numbers and you might have said, you know, sure, Bill Bergen is saving so many runs with his arm that it makes up for it. And that probably wasn't true, but you couldn't really do the math at the time the way that you can now. And, you know, maybe it Raphael Belliard's career, maybe, you know, the, the value of on base percentage, maybe it wasn't recognized as much as it is now. But now you've got Jeff Massis. I just wouldn't expect such an outlier performance from someone in this era. Of course, there's also more appreciation maybe for what he does do defensively and and the value there. So of the worst eight hitters of all time on this list, minimum 2,500 plate appearances, he's the only one who is not a sub-replacement level player because of his defense and his framing. But even so, at this point, despite the framing, he is, or at least according to what we can measure right now. So I'm kind of curious because he got a two-year deal, right? And so he is signed for next season, I believe. And I don't know that he'll actually make it if he keeps hitting like this but if he does he'll have an opportunity to keep dragging those career stats down yeah well and i mean it's easy to say oh you know it's it's only 200 and 209 plate appearances but he has played more at catcher than anybody else on the team he leads the team's catchers in <laughs> yeah. playing time by a fair amount he's about twice as high as uh as isaiah kiner falefa and then the last the, the two behind them are are quite a bit behind and so uh, he has been the primary catcher he um he has started about two-thirds of the games this month so the playing time's not not going away yeah um this is he's their starting catcher he is their regular he's the guy if they made the playoffs he would start the wild card game yeah <laughs> which I guess goes to show that his They're not reputation make them. for for well no that too <laughs> yeah <laughs> that's probably part of the reason but I guess his his defense is as valued as it's ever been and maybe if you've got you know Lance Lynn and, and Mike Miner having the seasons they're having I don't know that he's worked with them particularly or not i haven't looked but maybe they're raving about oh i want to work with jeff mathis you can't possibly bench jeff mathis because i'm lance lynn and i'm having a maybe a cy young season here so uh, it's he's really plumbing the depths of uh offensive ineptitude and and whether your other skills can keep you in the lineup and and people will tell you with Jeff Mathis of course that we still can't measure what Jeff Mathis can do and that he's this incredible game caller and RJ Anderson wrote about that and we still haven't really cracked that nut but who knows it's kind of it's like circled back to the beginning of his career now where you used to write about Napoli versus Mathis and yeah. Mike Sosha and how could Sosha possibly choose Mathis over Napoli and then we realized well the framing was actually worth so much that maybe Sosha was onto something and now even with the framing his value just seems to be so low but it's possible that he's still doing something that we can't measure and who knows maybe in 10 years we'll look back and oh Jeff Mathis actually was worth something even when he was batting 162. 
Yeah, I wrote, I mean, a lot of people probably don't know this about me if they started listening to the podcast sometime after 2014 or so, but I used to write about Jeff Mathis a lot, probably yeah. more than I wrote about any Major League Baseball player. And uh, it drove me absolutely crazy uh, when I was covering the Angels. I just could not possibly imagine that what Mike Sosha was seeing in him and what what was largely evading me, or which seemed like sort of fallacious myth-making, was, was really there. And then a uh, year after year passed, and he would go to new teams, and he would get new pitchers, and you would read all these quotes about how great he is to work with, and yeah. you would think, no, come on, they're all falling for the same old Jeff Mathis. And then you'd look in August, and sure enough, all of their numbers all of their numbers, every time, every pitcher were better when Jeff Mathis was catching. And I don't know, around 2013 or 2014, I just gave in and let myself sink down into that pool of Jeff Mathis savvy. And uh, I'm looking right now, and sure enough, Rangers staff ERA with Mathis is about four. Without Mathis, it's about six. <laughs> that's a big difference yeah <laughs> ops allowed with mathis is about 727 without mathis it's about 900 uh, <laughs> a little bit better than 900 big difference now i have mm -hmm. not broken down the pitchers right. to see if uh if he's only catching the good ones but you know i mean he never is you always look the, the deeper you go the more you find everybody is better when mathis is behind the plate it's very frustrating but i'm you know i'm i'm happy with it i'm happy mm -hmm. to acknowledge to acknowledge that it that it's something that has kept this really singular career going yeah and uh i, I mean look if there's it is a very valuable and satisfying and in a lot of ways freeing thing to realize a few years into your writing career that you were that something that you believed very strongly that you were just wrong about and that you can admit it. Mm -hmm. uh, and from that point on, I think that it, I think a lot of my writing changed after that. So <laughs> uh, I'm I'm grateful to Jeff Mathis for doing this every year. But yeah, yeah I mean, they, he's still he's still presumably the starting catcher going into next year, unless they sign somebody else. I don't know if the Rangers are are looking for catchers this offseason or not. Mm -hmm. Would right. you be? If I had Jeff Mathis? Yeah. <laughs> How could you do better? No, I guess not. <laughs> All right. <laughs> All right. Well, Ben, this week was the uh, the 25th anniversary of the day that the 1994 season was canceled. Mm -hmm. And uh, Tim Kirchin wrote a great sort of oral history, or not exactly an oral history, but many recollections of people who were who were there at the time and what they remember from the strike. And I don't know if you read this article. I did. There are many, as there often are when somebody deeply reports a baseball event, there are many great quotes in here, many, many things that I found very interesting. I thought maybe we'd just go over maybe just a few of them. Okay. Or maybe we won't, but I've introduced it. I want to know, though, before I, I, I go on with any of the quotes, what was the strike to you? At the time? Yeah. Nothing. <laughs> nothing at all. Were you a baseball I, fan? I was not. I was seven years old at the time, and I do remember seeing a, a snippet of the 1993 World Series. So I had been exposed to baseball a little bit, but I did not inherit 
baseball fandom from my immediate family. So it was not passed down to me. I kind of came to it myself. And post-strike, I I gravitated toward it partly, I think, because the Yankees got so good and I was close to them and it was hard to avoid it. But at the time, in 94, I was young and I was not following baseball closely. And I really can't recall thinking anything of it at the time. You know, I it's hard for me to remember exactly. I was um I I was 14 at the time. I was a, a huge huge baseball fan. I was tracking Matt Williams every day. I mm-hmm. he he was on pace to at the time I think he was on pace to hit 60.5 homers and he'd been just really keeping that pace for a couple of months. Uh and I I thought at the time, I mean, you know, imagine pre-McGuire, pre-Sosa, think yeah. about how big it would have seemed for a, a player to to really challenge 61 home runs. And I was in the Bay Area and Matt Williams was probably at the time maybe my favorite player, except that my favorite player was always actually somebody who was uh terrible, young and terrible. So my favorite player at the time might have actually been I think it was William Van Landingham that year. The next year was J.R. Phillips. But I really, of the good giants, Matt Williams was my favorite good giant. And so for me, it was really interesting because the day that really I think a lot of people remember as like the the real tragic day was the day in mid-September when they canceled the World Series, when they said, Mm -hmm. we're ending the season. There's not going to be a World Series. There's going to be a break in the continuity of the sport in a way that a few weeks of missed games wouldn't have necessarily represented. There had always been work stoppages here and there. We made it through, but to end a world series seemed like a, a, like something really serious. But for me, it was really the first game that the giants had canceled where I thought, well, there goes, you know, there goes 61. And so that really broke my heart. I don't otherwise really remember how I felt. It might have been devastating to me. It might not have been. I I remember some things that summer that like were pretty good. Like I remember I had the Lion King soundtrack uh and I listened to it a lot more than I I can really understand why as a as a teenager I did. I also had I was listening to that and Rage Against the Machine a lot and I don't really know how to put those things together. Exactly, yeah. right? Like so what I'm saying is like there's a lot from that summer that's kind of confusing. The Giants had almost moved the year before and that was uh, a very traumatic thing that they had actually announced they were going to Florida. And I think I've mentioned this. There was a big debate among, you know, family and, and friends about whether we would still root for them if they moved to Florida and what we would do if we were A's fans now. And that felt like really the, the potential, like a, an existential threat to my baseball fandom. And I don't remember feeling the same kind of sadness. I definitely do not remember appreciate uh, that agreeing with people who are like well now i'm not a baseball fan all Mm -hmm. i wanted was for the next season to start i mean i i really wanted baseball to come back it was unthinkable to me that i would like in any way protest this by like withholding my baseball fandom Uh, i only just wanted it more and more after that Mm -hmm. so that's kind of what it it meant to me so I don't know. We'll just go uh, just a few of these, a couple of few of these. FP Santangelo talks about he was a minor leaguer at the time, and he talks about the the challenge of of whether to play as a replacement player or not. He describes a scene where there's 200 minor leaguers, and like the GM at the time says, "Well, if anybody doesn't want to to play, you're welcome to to leave. Otherwise, you know, we're gonna have you play games." And and FP's in his telling of the story, he was the only one who who walked out and. And he also describes some veterans 
quote, screaming at the minor leaguers telling us we shouldn't play. A bunch of minor leaguers told them, if I don't play, you're going to release me. And they screamed back at us, if you have confidence in your ability that you're good enough to play, then you'll play. A bunch of millionaire players were telling poor kids from A-ball not to cross the line and give up their dream of playing in the big leagues. It was so messed up. And I really, it's hard for me to remember, appreciate, accept that really the owner's plan was that they were going to play a whole season with fake players. Yeah. How did they think that was going to work? That couldn't work, right? Like, There's no way that that would work, is there? Well, it had worked in football, right? For for most of a season, at least. The NFL did that, and it kind of broke the NFL Players Union. What so. would happen if they... What, what do you think? If, imagine that this happened right now, and, and we're tasked with writing it, and we under this, understand the sport to some degree, and we talk about it all the time. What, like, what... What would happen? Would we, well, I mean, I don't know, hypothetically, would we do podcasts about what was happening on the field? Would we treat those games as discussion topics? <laughs> I, I don't know. I guess maybe it, it almost depends on the circumstances that led to the strike. Like if we, if we felt that uh, the owners were so in the wrong or something that they were clearly like you know manipulating the sport to their own ends and and we just like on principle didn't think it was appropriate to cover it or something the way that Santangelo felt it was inappropriate for him to play maybe that would give us pause but just in general like in the newsworthiness of the sport and and how relevant and entertaining it is i think to replace <laughs> the players we know even if there are more anonymous, faceless players in the majors these days than there used to be because of player usage, I think it would still be just so jarring. I, I don't think I could get into it. I mean, you know, maybe after 10 years or something, mm -hmm. I'd be in withdrawal. I would just want baseball back and I'd figure, well, you know, most of those guys would have been out of the league anyway. So what difference does it make? But in the short term, I just like, and what if it were, would they just pick up the standings where they left off? Like if this was not a new season, I, I think if it were fresh from the start, like maybe, but if it were the kind of thing where like, I think in the NFL in that season, I think they, they started with the replacement players, right? And then they just kept the the standings, the, the records, the way they were, I think, when the real players came back. I, I don't know about football, but I, that's my vague recollection of what happened there. And that's even stranger because it's like you have this illegitimate league and you're counting it and then the real players come back and they have to just inherit what, what the replacement players did. So I can't imagine really having interest in it just maybe you know we cover the sport so maybe we'd be obligated to like you know explain what's happening here but just not knowing anyone it would be really difficult to care yeah i i agree i i don't think that it has anything to do with whose side we we would even be on i mean the idea that we would watch these games where you're basically putting you know children in their dad's suits and pretending that they're businessmen yeah. doesn't really seem like we could even keep a straight face through that like i don't know how we would take it at all seriously i don't know how we would act like the stakes meant anything i mean would the guy who won the batting title that year really get a plaque that says rod carew american league batting title or whatever they named the batting title like does, would anybody believe it would anybody treat that as 
in like you do you, do you think that a hundred years from now now see okay so i'm gonna say this sentence and you're already gonna have um raised a thing in your head and so i'm gonna acknowledge that i'm also gonna raise that thing but in a hundred years from now do we really think that anybody would look at these stats and be like ah yes uh you know this 28 year old who was playing in place of uh major leaguers was uh, had one of the great baseball seasons of all time just because he hit like 340 against whoever <laughs> would cross the picket line now so then the question, though, is that like, uh, is this different than w- what happened in World War Two, where there were that's yeah, that's what I was just right. Bring up. And and so I technically I mean, I, I it depends how closely I'm looking. I probably do sometimes just wrap 1944 stats in as though they're they're normal. And I don't make a by hand distinction for those years. If I'm looking closely, then I, I often do and I will and I'll go, oh, yeah, that was fake year. But sometimes I don't. And so maybe maybe i don't know maybe we would maybe it really would enter the history of the game and the records of the game and we wouldn't make a distinction of it after a few decades but it just seems to me that there is it would not it would not i i could not possibly i don't think convince myself within the span of a single year that the cardinals being up four games in the nl central was like a real sentence describing real life and not like a sim that someone was running on their their like a video game yeah, right. Well, obviously, World War Two. There were extenuating there were, circumstances, right. and there was no. There was obviously there was no villainy there, right? There was no. There was no like side to take. I mean, there was a villain, is Hitler, <laughs> right? Yes, right, and and also there was more continuity. It wasn't like every player left. Right. Like you right. know, I, I mean, when you look at like 1944, Marty Marion won the MVP award, and we don't think of that really as a. A real MVP season, I don't think, but but Barney Marion was there before the war, and he didn't deserve that MVP award. I, I don't think if you look at the war leaders, people who were who did not get as many votes as as he did, like Stan Musial had like a nine win season that year, and Marty Marion had like a five win season. But that's the point. Like Stan Musial was there, and Mel Ott was there, and Joe Medwick was there. You know, guys who were exempt from service for whatever reason, and and there were stars. So. It wasn't like complete turnover. Everyone disappears at the same time. And and some of the departures were staggered too. So some guys would leave it one time and then other guys would leave it other times. And so it was different, I think. And obviously at that time, like you needed baseball to kind of get you through the, the war years, or at least that was the idea behind continuing to play baseball, whereas you would not have that <laughs> with with the strike. So I don't think I could really maintain attention now there might be you know at a certain point do you come back like maybe there's lingering bitterness but do you just decide you know what i like baseball and this is the best baseball that's being played it's the best baseball i'm gonna get at a certain point you figure well these actually are the best baseball players who would be in the league anyway because you know age they they would have come up and other guys would have aged out and so you know that was an unfortunate episode but uh, time has has healed the wound and righted the wrong and now we're watching big league baseball again the way it would have been boy if <laughs> if i say yes uh i'm trying to figure out if if that uh if that makes me a scab (laughs) (laughs) right like how many years how many years how many years ben how many years the same owners and it's not the same Uh, commissioner and it's like the people around what are they so what are they paying these replacement players at this point how many years are we talking and what are they paying them like do they have a cba 
Are they being paid like stars? <laughs> this is hard to yeah. This is hard to envision. You'd have to like start a new league, maybe from scratch. I I don't know. Just to get rid of the the stain of the old one. Ooh, wow. Yeah. I mean, I don't. I don't. It's hard. I would say that basically anything realistic. If you're talking about anything within five years or so, uh, if you're telling me that hundreds of the world's best players are not playing, yeah. Uh, then, you know, Ben... And, and maybe those players would start their own league, Maybe right? they but would. They probably I, would, and you'd be more inclined to watch that than honestly, the players. Honestly, I'm going to need to see it. I'm going to need to see it before I can tell you how it would feel. Mm-hmm. I can't do this. It's too <laughs> hypothetical. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, well, I'm glad this didn't happen 25 years ago. So the, one of the things that came up when the NBA had their work stoppage a few years ago, I would always hear, I would, I, it felt like this was the theme of all the coverage of it was like, well, who's got the public on their side? Who's winning yeah. the PR campaign? And I am trying to figure out if that actually matters. If, if, that, if the reason that that gets written about a lot is because, you know, we're sports writers and we like to, we have to ha- keep score somehow. Uh, that's what we, that's what the sort of default is in really in any coverage, to be honest, of any topic is a tendency to keep score. But does it matter? Like, do you think that in this day and age, uh, maybe it did in 94, I don't know. But do you think if there was a strike now, it would matter whether the public blamed the players or the owners? Does it is there any distinction coming back? I mean, if they blame the players, let's say that doesn't do anything for the owners. It's not like then everybody's going to want to run back and cheer for the players if they blame them. And if they blame the owners, like, I don't really see how that hurts or helps either. It feels like everybody ultimately, when dis- when coming back and deciding whether to spend their money on the sport, they see the owners and the players as part of the same sport when, when they're rejoined, right? Mm-hmm. And... If they think that the players are to blame or they think the owners are to blame in the period of the strike or of the the lockout itself, well, when there's no money to be spent anyway, it doesn't really matter who they're blaming because they're not spending their money anyway. And, you know, to repeat myself, when they come back, I just don't think that they're going to distinguish. They're going to look at the sport and say, well, is this sport a sport I want to feel emotions about or is it not? Um, And I, I just don't really see why the PR battle is such a big deal so can you convince me that the pr battle is a big deal does it matter well i think it puts pressure obviously pressure is going to be on both sides because people who like baseball just want there to be baseball and they probably care about that even more than they care about whose fault it is or or who deserves more of the blame for their not being baseball obviously that's the case for for kids, right? Like Stephen Vogt is quoted in this oral history and he's like, you know, I didn't know whether it was the owners or the players. I didn't make any distinction. I was just like, where's baseball? Yeah. And and I think that's probably the case for a pretty large percentage of fans, like casual fans who aren't really going to get into the issues that much or they just think, you know, whatever, it's millionaires versus billionaires and the players have too much money and uh, the owners have too much money and I, I don't sympathize with either and they're both great and we should just have baseball. And so that would probably be a a big portion of the fan base. But I think if there is strong public sentiment one way or the other, that could sway the negotiations, I think. But how? Where is the the pressure point? How would the public be able to put pressure on either side in any tangible way? 
Well, it's it's true, I guess, that they can't really vote with their wallets in this situation because no baseball is being played. So it's not like they can withhold. But I I think owners, you know, they buy baseball teams partly because they want to be like celebrities or, you know, local icons. And so if everyone hates them and is, you know, everywhere they go, people are yelling at them to bring baseball back. I think that might weaken their resolve and, you know, same thing with players potentially. Just the whole thing with a strike is like you have to keep everyone together Mm -hmm. and Mm -hmm. you can't have cracks in the foundation. And I think, you know, when you do have people in the newspapers and media and social media and everything just piling on one side and people having in-person interactions where they're facing a a lot of rage because of their actions or perceived actions. I think that could make one side or the other more likely to lose its resolve and cave at some point. All right. I'm glad I asked because I think that's a good answer. I think that even if there's no actual tangible way that the public can put pressure on the sort of institutions that are negotiating, if you're a ball player. I mean, there's a great quote in here where Gene Orza is talking about how there there wasn't a peep from the players on the 12th, which is the day that um, the, the day that it they went on strike. There wasn't a peep from the players on the 12th, not a peep. In the weeks after that, there was an occasional moment where Joe Bag of Donuts said something, mm-hmm. which is quite the <laughs> own of some 1994 ball player who gave Gene Orza grief, where Joe Bag of Donuts said something and someone had to get on the horn, but there was very little of that. The focus was simply on getting a deal. And he goes on to say that it's incredible that that he did not have any, he basically went, you know, seven months, eight months, whatever it was, without a single major high profile public defection from any of the players, from any of the the main veterans. Uh, He lists off the stars of the day and said every one of them was, was there with us till the end. And yes, you can imagine that if you're, you know, Oral Hershiser or whatever star of the day, and you just, every night, every night you just want to watch Leno and Leno is just ripping on you that Mm -hmm. you'd start to doubt yourself maybe. Or these days, the public has a more direct conduit to many players because they're all on Twitter or Instagram or whatever. And of course, they could choose not to look, but it's always tempting to look. And Mm -hmm. so if you see that your mentions are overwhelmingly people mad at you instead of people supporting you, then that could influence you. Yeah. Although I bet their mentions are overwhelmingly people mad at you. (laughs) That's probably true. Yeah. No matter what. But yes, the, the individuals themselves might be vulnerable to pressure. Buck Showalter has a quote in here, which was the passion our players took for that strike, what they were fighting for. I'm not sure that exists today. I'm not sure the game could withstand another strike the next spring. uh, Well, and then he goes off. So there's a lot of talk about how the players uh, held together during Mm -hmm. the strike. And Showalter seems to be saying that maybe that was uh, particular to that era, but that maybe if if there was a similar uh, threat of a stoppage today, that it wouldn't happen. And I guess neither one of us really has any insight into that. But I guess on the one hand, you could say that the players, they they get paid a lot more now. They have more to lose. Mm -hmm. Um, They have more to lose and they might because of how much they are paid they might feel that they have less to gain um they probably do, i don't know maybe they don't have less to gain but they might feel that they have less to gain uh by by striking or by uh, not not playing 
on the other hand, um, it does feel like there's a lot more camaraderie among players these days that there's not as much animosity between players, between teams, that it's a, a much more, co- that there is much more of a sense, not just in baseball, but I would say in sports generally of the athletes as a, as a block, as a block against management, against ownership, against the commissioner. And I feel like in a lot of ways, athletes in general are much more unified today than they were 20 years ago. Um, and you saw that, I think you saw that a lot last off season where there was a, I think a real consistency in the messaging coming out of players um, on social media and, and elsewhere, where it really felt like they understood their shared interests, they understood the power of their collective action, and they understood in a more sophisticated way throughout the league, not just the players' reps, but throughout the league, um, what's at stake for mm-hmm. some of these decisions. And so I sort of feel like um, I could imagine for various reasons including simply the experience of having seen both baseball go through this in their lifetime and also other sports go through this more recently. I could imagine that affecting things in one direction or the other, but I think if Buck Showalter is saying that the players don't have the grit or the players don't have the whatever it is that held them together, I don't know that I, I don't think I see that. Well, I think they're definitely more aware of the issues than they were five years ago because uh, the issues weren't issues five years ago in some cases. I mean, free agency was working fine as far as we knew until you know the past few years. So things have changed, and I think that has energized the players, and I think there is more collective awareness of those issues and collective action. I don't know if that's true compared to, say, 30 years ago, though. I mean, when the players were going through this strife regularly, when they were on lockouts and strikes and when they were in these bitter battles with the owners and Marvin Miller was there and they were winning these concessions and times were a lot harder for them, I think at that point uh, there was a lot of awareness and there was a lot of animosity and i think maybe players weren't like fraternizing on the field or or off the field as much as they do now but i think in terms of the the labor situation they were probably more determined mm-hmm. just because you know they they had to be to fight those battles and now it's been 25 years since the strike and there's been labor peace for for quite some time now and none of the players today remembers those times and those fights that I think were still sort of uniting players even when the strike came around because the you know collusion had just been several years before that and that was fresh in all the players minds and they didn't trust the owners and everything so I think probably some of that I, I talked to Gene Orza briefly when I was writing about Lords of the Realm not long ago. Oh, this is sort of fresh in my mind because I did recently reread Lords of the Realm and then read Bud Selig's book. And of course, you get very different perspectives on the same issues from those two books. But I talked to Orza and, you know, he was talking about that and about the collective institutional memory of the Players Association. And, you know, there isn't that continuity in the leadership and, and all of that. So, I think there would be some obstacles and the money. I guess on the one hand, like players now, if if there was a, a strike, they wouldn't have to worry about like getting a second job for the most part. So in that sense, there'd be less pressure to come back. 
because for the most part, like major leaguers are are not going to be going hungry if they don't play for half a season. But on the other hand, they might think that they're doing so well already that it's just too drastic an action to take. Hmm. It really is a miracle that the players union exists and is as strong as it is. I mean, it really is a, yeah. an incredible achievement of organizing that yeah. you got these players, many of whom, I mean, time is their enemy and their careers are so yeah. short. And there are players who, because of this, I mean, I, I, I technically the player, so, okay, technically these players that I'm about to say did not. I don't think have a vote, but there are players who, because of this strike, never appeared in the majors and otherwise would have, you know, a small, a very small number of September call-ups that year who that would have been their whole career. They didn't make the majors and uh, presumably those players, although I don't know, it was 40 man, it's 40 man uh, union. Yeah. 40 man's a union member, right? Yeah. So, so they would have yep. voted. Mm-hmm. And so th- yep. these would have been players who presumably voted to go on strike and uh, lost their, their, you know, their one week in the majors uh, because of it. And but on a on a on a different scale, every player is just giving up such a disproportionate amount of their ability to play the game, to make leave their mark, to uh, put up the numbers that are going to define their career, and uh, the fact that they are that they all do this for the next generation, you know, in a lot of ways, largely to benefit the next generation, uh, is really an incredible thing. It's yeah. Uh, uh, should we i should we should probably read books about this union all the time yeah one other thing i i saw that joshian tweeted the other day reading these even-handed retrospectives of the 1994 strike is funny because in the moment the coverage as it had been in 1990 and 1985 and 1981 and was laughably ill-informed and unquestionably pro-management we'll see what happens in 2021 And I do think that's an interesting factor. Obviously, I wasn't reading the coverage at the time, but my impression from the reading I have done is is that that was the case that you you had, I think, lots of people in the media who were kind of, you know, the the line was uh, players are greedy and they're making all this money and uh, sort of siding with management more so. And we'll see the specifics this time around and how the negotiation goes, but I think with the liberalization of sports writing in general that Brian Curtis wrote about for The Ringer a year or two ago, you'd probably get fewer just like, you know, the players are greedy takes and it's all their fault. And I don't know whether that would affect things or not, but I do think the tenor of the coverage would be a little bit different if this happens again. Yeah, there's a great book uh, on on that, on the coverage. There's a uh, It's a book called Baseball's Power Shift. It's by Christopher Swanson. I've mentioned it on this podcast before. I love this book. And it is largely about the coverage of of labor relations through the years. Mm. And uh, yeah, I mean, it feels, reading it, it feels fairly foreign to what I would expect to happen. But I don't really know. You never know. So if, uh, let's just say, Ben, hypothetically, season ended today, there was a strike, they canceled the season. What would you be most disappointed in the 2019 baseball season to not get to see the conclusion of? Hmm. It's a good question because there aren't really any record chases that I'm very invested in this year. We've talked about that in the past. And I guess, you know, there are some good pennant races. I mean, there's the AL Central race, which I'm pretty into right now. And I guess I'd, I'd really just 
probably be most sorry about the playoffs, like missing the playoffs, missing the chance to see the Astros and the Yankees and the Dodgers and these really great teams go head to head again. But I don't know if there's a specific team like people lament the 1994 Expos, for instance, or, you know, Tony Gwynn going after 400, or as you mentioned, Matt Williams chasing Roger Maris. Like, there isn't really that this year, I don't think, for me. Yeah, I think that, so the Astros and the Dodgers currently have the, they both have the highest third order winning percentage in history. They're also both, you know, extremely good by just normal wins, but uh, the chance to potentially see those two teams uh, again in the postseason. Yeah. I know that some people will be bored by the repetition. I'm not bored. I'm not bored of either one of those teams in the postseason right now, mm-hmm. particularly because there are new teams playing alongside them every year. So uh, it's not like we only get two teams. So I'm interested in seeing them in the postseason. And these, these in some ways feel like uh, these are two teams that have been defining teams of the era in different ways. And yeah. I I think we might look back and say that these were each of their best teams. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so to see those seasons uh, cut short, particularly with the Dodgers, like really trying to do something like this is a this has been a many year project to um, to turn around something that has been a many decade issue in L.A. Uh, to see them lose that chance would uh, be a bummer, but uh, if I had to pick, I would say uh, it's Hunjin Ryu's, uh, Ryu's um, ERA. Yeah. He's yeah. got a 1.45 ERA, man. That's the second best in history after yeah. the dead ball era. And I don't want it to, I mean, I, I wouldn't want it to end after 142 innings. I mean, technically it would still be a qualifying ERA. It would, it would show up in all your queries, but it would be, it would be diminished as only 142 innings. And let me it's just, true. Uh, I think it, it, technically speaking, Let's see. Let me just plug in some numbers here. Uh, if he can go 43 scoreless innings, I think, <laughs> then he would actually <laughs> beat Bob Gibson's record. And he, w- he will make, if the. I mean, since there is no strike, since there is the season will go on, uh, he should make probably like eight more starts. So, uh, you know, he's yeah. got a, he's got a, he's got a slim shot at it. Although, if the season did end now, then you'd always remember the 1.45 ERA, whereas odds are, with the season continuing, it'll end up being like a 2.1 or something, which is, you know, great. But it probably won't be the second best, and so maybe it will just not all be all that memorable in the end. You're asking me which I would prefer. Would I prefer to <laughs> see you'd rather have Ryu? the second best, but it's it's tarnished somewhat because yeah. it's it's only 142 and two thirds, and you miss the the long shot chance that he manages to stay at that level or even improve it over the the rest of the season, or would you just cash in and take this because it's been so cool, and you know that odds are that it will probably be less cool by the end of the season. Well, if it were a counting stat, like it, like I do not remember Matt Williams' season as being like on a per game basis, you know, the best of all time. Uh, so in that case, you definitely wanted it to keep going. But on a rate stat, that brings up Tony Gwynn and how yeah. uh, Tony Gwynn's 394 is extremely memorable. It's the highest batting average, I think, since Ted Williams hit 400. And despite some of these quotes in the article, 
probably most likely probably would have gone down if uh mm-hmm. if he'd kept playing there is this quote that like i i read some version of this quote every couple of years including i believe from tony Gwynn. i believe tony Gwynn said something similar to this when when he was living but this is from tim hires i had no doubt that he would have hit 400 that season. And Hires, I, I think, goes on to explain that he was hitting everything hard, everything perfect. You couldn't believe it. You'd never seen anybody hit better. But, the, but I mean, he was hitting 394, though. Like, he, if he, I could see if he'd been at, like, 414, and you were like, he definitely would have held on. I mean, you should have seen him. He was, like, truly right. a 400. But he only was hitting 394. <laughs> it wasn't whatever you saw at the time was not good enough. In fact, right. he needed to do better than that. And you yeah. did not see him do better than that. So yeah. right. <laughs> there's also a quote from uh, Brad Osmus, who was his teammate at the time, uh, who says, I don't know if Tony would have hit four. And this is kind of an interesting quote because it's like a full article idea. It's a full article idea, but it's kind of off topic for this article, which is, I don't know if Tony would have hit 400 in 1994, but I do remember thinking if Tony had played for Colorado, he would have hit 420. And so that, now I'm going to Tony Gwynn, neutralized batting stats to 1994 Colorado. And so let's see what Tony Gwynn actually would have hit that year. I think it's going to be way over 420. Like, I think it's going to be 445. <laughs> yeah, maybe. He would have hit, oh, proud man, 426. Oh, pretty good. Brad Osmus. <laughs> You think he checked? Great mental park adjustments. He knew. (laughs) Incredible. Another thing I'd be mad about, by the way, is Trout. I think we'd both be mad about Trout being cost a a chance at what might be his best season and and just generally taking away a few war from whatever his ultimate total turns out to be. And an MVP award. Right, yes, and because one of the worst things about 94 is that Jeff Backwell season when he was at eight war through 110 games, which, I mean, that could have been an all-time season too, so. I uh, had forgotten this, I uh, but they actually did do MVP voting, so uh, yeah, he, he Trout, Trout would get his MVP. Oh, that's true, yes, right. Award. Yeah, so just uh, one or two quick things, uh, the, the wackiest, quote in this yeah (laughs) i know i'm i already know you're gonna this is harold reynolds oh well no actually that that's probably the second wackiest but the 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 one that made me do a double take was the the buck showalter quote about uh, i'll just read it we were back he was of course the yankees manager at that time we were back we were taking off for the first time in forever we had moments that we had not had in forever how we had pieced that team together, how the people fit. Don Mattingly would have been would a shoe-in Hall of Famer if that season had been played. What? Yeah. <laughs> because, why? Because <laughs> he would have had a, a playoff appearance? Uh, <laughs> I don't know. Maybe. I, I, don't, I don't understand. It wasn't like he was having a good season. He was, you know, he had the back thing by then and was pretty much, uh, I mean, he not hits, washed yeah, up, he, but he, he had six homers. Yeah, and so I, I, and he he did make the playoffs in '95, so it, it wasn't like he never made the playoffs. Not that that was the one thing keeping him out. So, yeah, that that didn't make any sense to me at all. The Harold Reynolds quote didn't either, but you know that was Harold Reynolds, and so I wasn't so surprised to hear him say that. He said. That was when baseball became a business, which, of course, it had always been a business. And then he said that sabermetrics began with the strike. 
which I don't yeah. know if there was any connection said, there. What happened with that strike <laughs> is that baseball became a business. Bud Selig never knew it was going to come to that, but with that strike, players became numbers. With sabermetrics today, that's all they are today, sabermetrics began with the strike. And uh, I would say that that is a a theory that needs more space than than one paragraph to flesh out. I mean, I, I yes. will assume that Harold Reynolds has, has, uh, has thought this out and probably has a couple thousand words on it and not just one paragraph. But in a paragraph, it definitely comes out a little like a, like a very hot take. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's funny. There's a, a competing oral history of this very same thing that I have not read. But Evan Drellick did a, another very long one, an oral history of the 1994 MLB strike from both sides of the bargaining table. I'll link to that too, and maybe I'll I'll also read it. It'd be kind of interesting to compare and contrast the the tones of these articles because the sources are mostly different, not entirely, but like Drellick has Rob Manfred and Kirkjian has Selig, and mm. then uh, Drellick has Don Fear, mm. and uh, Kirkjian has Orza. Actually, they both have Orza, and they both have Clavin. So mm-hmm. I wonder if some guys were like, "Oh, sorry, already doing this other oral history," and other guys are like, "I'll I'll do both oral histories. I don't have to choose sides here." But yeah, this is uh, Tony Clark's in both of them, but. There are some unique ones, so I'm sure they're both worth your time. Yeah, I'm sure they are. All right. Mm-hmm. Uh, okay. All right. I mentioned briefly how fun a storyline the AL Central race is. It got a little more intriguing on Tuesday because after Cleveland had taken the lead in the division on Monday, they lost on Tuesday while the Twins won. So the Twins retook that lead atop the AL Central. This is, I think, the best race in baseball. Would have liked to talk about it today, but I did talk about it at some length on the Ringer MLB show. So you can go check out that segment if you're interested. And maybe Sam and I will talk about it next time. This storyline is not going away. I did not think we would have such a riveting AL Central race at the start of the season, and I did not think we would have such a riveting AL Central race when the Twins were up by 11 and a half games. So this has worked out well from an entertainment standpoint. You can support the podcast on Patreon by going to patreon.com slash effectivelywild. The following five listeners have already signed up to pledge some small monthly amount, help keep the podcast going, and get themselves access to some perks. Russell Schreiber, Ryan Teitman, Keith, Jonathan Baker, and Lane Maddox. Thanks to all of you. You can join our Facebook group at facebook.com slash group slash Effectively Wild, and you can rate, review, and subscribe to Effectively Wild on iTunes and other podcast platforms. Keep your questions and comments for me and Sam and Meg coming via email at podcast.fangraphs.com or via the Patreon messaging system if you are a supporter. Thanks to Dylan Higgins for his editing assistance. You can buy my book, The MVP Machine, How Baseball's New Nonconformists Are Using Data to Build Better players. If you like it, leave a review on Amazon and Goodreads. It helps us out. We will be back a little later this week with one more episode, so we will talk to you then. Strike down the